Amen. Good morning. My name is Ben, one of the pastors here at Hope Church. You've already grabbed a seat. Good job. Uh, we're going to be in the book of Proverbs today. So if you have a copy of the scriptures, you can turn or tap your way to Proverbs. We're going to be in the back half, last two chapters, chapters 30 and 31. As we finish up our series on the wisdom book of scripture, there's a wisdom sort of um, set of books in scripture, but kind of Proverbs is at the head of that line. And We've been going through for several weeks thinking about what God has taught us about how the world works. I really hope that you will follow along with us as we go. If you have a copy of the Scriptures, great. If not, don't panic. We'll have those words for you on the screen. We'd love to give you a copy of the Scriptures on your way out. So, wisdom. When we talk about it, we're not just talking about just handy sort of maxims to make your life go better. When we talk about wisdom from God, we're talking about the way in which He has made the universe to work. It's a fallen world. It's a broken universe. It doesn't work like it's supposed to. But He has still made it with a logic, with the way it's supposed to be. And if we live in accordance with the way it's supposed to be, if we work with the user's manual, if we work with the grain of the universe, then things are going to work better. The highlight of this series, we're, we're talking about riches, honor, and life. And we don't just mean spiritually. We do most emphatically mean that spiritually you'll be blessed as you know the Lord and He will give you riches, honor, and life in Him. But we also want to emphasize, we are not a health and wealth church, but we also want to emphasize that if you live wisely, you are more likely to experience wise results from your life. So we want to pursue it. We want to understand it. We want to do as well as we can with it. And on this last week in the book, I want to kind of review with you some of the stuff we've thought about and seen. Now, I don't know if you're uh, an athlete. I'm not. I'm large, but that does not an athlete make. Uh, any kind of success I've had in basketball has come from just the genetic lottery of, you know, big bones, uh, big, tall bones. And people think you must be good. No, you know, it's easy to make the shot when you're like two inches from the rim. It doesn't require a lot of skill. But I've always envied the guys who do have a lot of natural athleticism. If you played sports, you know what I'm talking about. The kind of people that, that, yeah, they work hard and they do know what they're doing, but there seems to be um, just a perfect sort of connection between what they're attempting to do and what their body does. I have to think too much. I'm too in my head. But some guys, and it's not that they're not in their head, they're not unintelligent, whatever the jock sort of stereotype is, but they just have the capacity to do what they intend to do. That throw, it just comes out perfectly. That swing, it just moves beautifully and it's poetic. As we attempt to understand the wisdom of the world, we're attempting to have that perfect sort of motion with the world, how God's made it. And it begins where we began with the fear of the Lord. In Proverbs chapter 1, it says that the beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord. And the sort of highlight verse that I wanted us to see with a whole of this series is Proverbs 22, 4, which says, the reward for humility and fear of the Lord is riches, honor, and life. Now, when it says fear of the Lord, we want to understand that it means more than what we usually mean with that word fear. 
If I talk about fear, you know, you usually just sort of think about something that scares you, snakes or spiders or the dark. What this is talking about is not less than that, it's greater than. It talks about something that you have awe over. I don't know if you, you drive. Everybody drives um, relatively frequently in Salt Lake City. You kind of have to. And if you're driving, you can kind of take it for granted that you have this thing and it just gets you from A to B. But if you've ever been walking and you've gone to cross a crosswalk and somebody gets close to hitting you, you realize real quick what it is that a car really is. It's thousands of pounds of metal that's moving quickly towards humans, and it can end you. You begin to have a respect for it and awe of it. When God talks about the fear of the Lord in Scripture, He's not just saying that you should be afraid of Him. No, He says fear not, but it's a fear of awe that says that the whole of my world realizes God is. He's the fact of the universe. He's the big thing at the center of it. And all of my life revolves around that central reference point. He's the king. He's the president. He's the father. He's the husband. Him. Then, understanding that and the humility that comes with saying that I am not him, I am not the center of the universe, comes wisdom. We talk from that about the sort of two giant tables that are set for us in the Proverbs. We have these two women that are calling out. You have wisdom that is calling out to all who are simple to come in to her feast. And she's laid out this amazing feast for anyone who would come and eat. And you'll be satisfied and you'll be full. But to go there, you have to choose not to go to this other table where this other woman is enticing and there are sweet smells and there's uh, a tempting sort of um, feast that she's laid out as well. But instead of being wisdom, this woman is the temptress. She's the adulteress. And it's not just adultery, even though sexual immorality is a big part of the Proverbs. It's, it's foolishness. It's the call to do what God has commanded us not to do. And that woman is also enticing, and her food also looks delicious. There's a smell coming out of that kitchen that you want to go and investigate. But instead of food that gives you life and strength, that food is poison. It leads to death. So we have to be thinking very clearly about not just what do we declare to be true, but what are we actually consuming? What does our life actually look like? Are we displaying the wisdom that we're proclaiming to other people around us. If so, if you're going to actually do that, then you also have to do something else that comes across kind of weird in Proverbs, but it's really helpful if you actually look at it. It says in Proverbs 28, 26, whoever trusts in his own mind is a fool. What? There's all kinds of sci-fi horror about not being able to trust your own mind. What is this saying? It says, if you trust your own mind, you're a fool, but he who walks in wisdom will be delivered. The Bible's clear that your heart is driving your life, but your heart is a drunk driver. <laughs> your heart does not desire what it should. In fact, it desires what it shouldn't. And sometimes it desires what it should, but even in the moment, it's still desiring what it should. It's broken. It's not working correctly. It needs to be changed. It needs to, instead of its own wisdom, follow the wisdom from above. 
And if we do that, then we're going to gain that much more ability to, to see things how God sees them and to do things how God declares we should do them. And then, by His grace, it's not just this, this list of rules we try to follow. As we do things His way, He also begins to inform our heart to delight in what it should delight in. In wisdom, He's going to satisfy us with a deep satisfaction that can entice us to continue pursuing wisdom. It says, uh, this one guy, John Piper is a, a preacher. He says, when my thirst for joy and meaning and passion are satisfied by the presence and promises of Christ, the power of sin is broken. I don't yield to the offer of sandwich meat when we can smell the steak sizzling on the grill. Now, David very helpfully reminds me not to use food metaphors because about half of you now are like, ooh, what are we doing for lunch? <laughs> I get it. Come back, though. Uh, come back. That's a helpful quote. It's a good idea. It's a good metaphor, but something spiritual. So stay with me. It is that he can, he can actually satisfy. So as you look at the individual topics that are addressed in the Proverbs, more than we had time to cover, you'll see that he, he does instruct our desires when it comes to money. Money is not first and foremost what you do with it or how much you give to Hope Church. Money is your ability to go out in the world and make something how you want it to be. You walk into a restaurant and if you have money, they'll give you what you want. You walk into a store. You walk into wherever. If you have money, what you have is an ability to declare your will. And they make it happen. So what you do with money is not just about being generous or being miserly. What you do with money is an expression of the deep desires in your heart. Okay, well, what are you doing with it? It says in Proverbs 13, 25, The righteous has enough to satisfy his appetite, but the belly of the wicked suffers want. If we use things the way he commands us to use them, it leads to satisfaction. Not just money, but diligence. God commands the way in which we are supposed to use the resources of time and talent and treasure that he's given us. We covered how God commands us to be like the ant. Not to be this sluggardly person who just sort of follows the, the will of the moment. But to be the person who's thinking about what is to come and is working daily to bring that about. It's not easy. It's hard. But it's what he's made us for. Not work in a drudgery sort of a sense, but work in the best sense of seeing what can be and working to bring it about. It's how we are made in His image. A lady named Diane Langberg said it this way, The voice of God spoke everything into existence. He entered history as the Word made flesh. To be created in His image is to have a self that projects itself into the world. To be in His image is to have voice, creative expression, thought, and will brought to bear on the world. God has called us to rule and to subdue. Those are power words. They mean to go and to have impact, to go and to make things happen, to go and to grow, to go and to create, and to go and change things. Amen. That's the kind of work that we're called to. He called us when he made Adam and Eve to go and to fill the earth and to subdue it. Not to trample on it, but to bring it into accord with God's will for flourishing. So we're diligent. We're diligent even with our words. 
Those words that can create and destroy that she's referencing are the same words that we have as an image bearer that we have the ability to use to build people up or destroy them. This guy, Paul David Tripp, a guy we really like, he said that you can sum up the whole of Proverbs around this theme of words. Words give life. Words bring death. You choose. We talked about either gossip, slander, and self-promotion, among other ways, that you use your words to destroy. Or you can speak. God's given you wisdom. You can speak to others and speak wisdom and peace and life. What will you choose? Then last week, we talked about anger. I don't know if you were here or not. In general, people are very friendly. They smile at me. And there's a temptation that I have coming up here and speaking to you for however long to, to judge sort of myself based on my ability to communicate and how did you receive it and did you like what I said or not or whatever. And I got to kind of deal with that. It's one of my own little demons. But I can tell when something hits because most of the time people are friendly and quiet. But every now and again through the week, I'll get some texts. And last week talking about anger touched a nerve uh, for a lot of you. Apparently, I mean, you're fighting it, but apparently you're an angry, angry people. <laughs> so I appreciate that God is challenging us on that, to be angry. It doesn't just mean the sort of Hulk smash, freak out, punch a wall anger. It's also the quiet burning of bitterness. The sort of uh, hilarious, funny, backbiting, burning anger of slander. When you paint the fuller picture of what human anger looks like, ooh, you can agree with Proverbs 16.32 that says, whoever is slow to anger is better than the mighty. And he who rules his spirit than he who takes a city. I don't want man's anger. I don't want sinful anger. I want God's anger that righteously sees the world and, and uses that anger to go and to defend that constructive displeasure we talked about that's at the heart of mercy. That God intends us to be like Him. Ephesians 4 puts it together perfectly. It says, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. Do like God did, because He did that for you. You've tasted, you've seen how good it is. Now, now give it to others. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. Walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. So how does all of this kind of work together? If you read the Proverbs, one of the big problems we have as organization, it seems like it's just sort of a haphazard list of wisdom sayings. How do you put it all together? Well, you put it all together in the same way that the whole of Scripture is put together. You are called in the fear of the Lord to serve other people. Said differently, as Moses or Jesus might have said it, you are called to love the Lord with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. It all fits together in this massive call that God has for us to love Him and love each other. And it's put a, a neat little bow on it at the end of Proverbs. Proverbs 31, it gives us a picture of a man who is doing it right. Or at least what his mother says by the divine 
Holy Spirit speaking through her, what, what she, the wisdom she is giving to her son, this king, what we are supposed to be as men. And the back sort of two-thirds of Proverbs 31, very popular passage is something a lot of people know about because it gives such a clear picture of what God has said for women to be. So let's look at both of them quickly. Proverbs 31 is talking about men. What are you doing, oh my son? What are you doing, son of my womb? Now, his name's Lemuel. Call him son. Uh, moms, I don't know if in your exhortation of your sons it's helpful to bring up the phrase, son of my womb. That's a little graphic, but it's biblical. Okay. What are you doing, son of my vows? Don't give your strength to women. Your ways to those who destroy kings. It's not for kings, O Lemuel. It's not for kings to drink wine or for rulers to take strong drink lest they drink and forget what's been decreed and pervert the rights of the afflicted. Give strong drink to the one who's perishing and let wine uh, and wine to those in bitter distress. Let them drink and forget their poverty and remember their misery no more. But you open your mouth for the mute for the rights of all who are destitute. Open your mouth and judge righteously. Defend the rights of the poor and the needy. Do you see that picture? Men, put away sexual immorality. Put away all this distraction with the addiction that you go and you chase after, whether it's alcohol or food or anything else that you use, good gifts that God's given that you use in order to, to just Walk around in a self-focused stupor. No, no, no. Put all of that away and instead be one who pursues the kingdom, who cares for the poor, who brings about the rights of the destitute, who cares for the rights of the poor and the needy. That's what God's made us to do now. It's that same diligence, that same work with this new picture of what we're trying to bring about in the world. Not just wealth, not just security. Those things are only going to come through Christ. No, no, no. My goal is to bring about what God has, has given us to fight for and to build in his kingdom. Okay, men, now ladies. It says in Proverbs 31, verses 10 and 12, then 2, 12, an excellent wife who can find. She's more precious than jewels. The heart of her husband trusts in her. And he will have no lack of gain. She does him good and not harm all the days of her life. You read through the rest of this chapter, it then gives you picture after picture after picture of this woman who is diligent. She's wheeling and dealing. She's getting stuff done. She's buying real estate. She's thinking about how to make it real profitable. She's taking raw material, whatever it may be, stuff that's produced on the farm or stuff that she buys. And then through her hard work and skill, she spins it into something that's even more valuable, something she can clothe her family with or sell in the marketplace. She's getting after it. But it's not just these externals. It's also internal. It says in verses 25 to following, strength and dignity are her clothing. She laughs at the time to come. She opens her mouth and there's wisdom. There's teaching of kindness on her tongue. She looks well to the ways of her household and doesn't eat the bread of idleness. Her children rise up and call her blessed. Her husband also, he praises her saying, many women have done excellently, but you surpass them all. Charm is deceitful. Beauty is vain. But a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. Give her the fruit of her hands and let her works 
praise her in the gates. You see, this woman is not just external. She's not just skilled at getting things done out in the world. She has an internal integrity. She reflects what God has chosen us to be. She's wise and she speaks kindness. She is constantly giving to her family and those around her. When those come, people come to her, they see something that is spectacular. And they honor the God who has made something like this woman. And you see that it's not anything external. Who this woman is and what is so wonderful about her is not that easily bought. It's something that is slow, something that is wise, something that takes time, something that's real. And goes well beyond the skin, the external. Strength, dignity, wisdom, and submission. All throughout this passage is the way that she honors her husband, and then her husband in turn honors her. Men and women, very different. Equal, but different. Wisdom. All right, look at all that together. How you doing? Killing it? I read this stuff from 31. Were you like, is he talking about me? (laughs) He's been talking to my spouse because, no. No, this isn't us. Man, you read this stuff and you see a perfect picture of how the world is supposed to work. And yet, it's not our life. It's maybe something to aspire to, something to get better at, but it's not something we're currently living. Add to that the fact that the gospel says, the scriptures say, that to fall short of the standard is not just, oh, you know, shucks, you're going to have some hard things to deal with. To fall short of the standard is to rebel against the God who is holy. It means that you've sinned. You don't have a choice about this thing that he's commanded you to do, this weight that he has given you to carry. You don't have a choice about it. You either do it and he rewards you or you don't. And I talk about athletics, talk about people that really can do things and they just their body work on a different wavelength. If you watch the Olympics, you saw that. If you watch the Olympic weightlifting, it's crazy. I don't know how much they're moving. Like the plates are different colors, and I don't know what that corresponds to. They talk about kilograms, so who knows what it could be weight-wise. But the bars are bent like it's an, an incredible amount of weight. And you watch them step up to the bar, and then they, boom, and then they try to get it up, and then they got to try and stand up under a kind of weight that would crush you and me. Maybe Banta would be okay. The rest of us would be crushed. Keith Bent is a guy who goes to Hope Church, and he's very large, okay? <laughs> Fill in the blank there if you're new to us. Thank you for coming. It would crush us, and it does crush us. He gives you this weight. He commands that you live to this standard, and you've got a couple of options here. These are the options that people take. One, you can pretend. You know you can't do it, but, but you can try to make your life look like you're holding that weight. And if you're pretending, why not go for it and make it look like you can hold that weight easily? That's what happens with religious people, right? They walk around and allow you to assume that they're living life in perfection, and they try to show you that they're doing it with a smile. 
but you can't hold that weight. You know you're lying. And that deception crushes. That double life creates a fear and anxiety that has to be dealt with some way. So you see all of this abuse of drugs. Not like just hard stuff that goes in your veins, but like the antidepressant use. There's legitimate uses for that stuff. Please hear me. But I'm talking about people that break themselves in order to present the world with a lie. And then they use whatever they can find to just sort of make the machine continue. You can pretend that'll crush you. Or you can just walk away from it. People do that too. They just say, okay, I know that I can't do this, so I'm just going to drop it. I'm just going to go. I can't have God. I can't have an afterlife, but I can try to get what pleasure I can before the night comes. Eat, drink, for tomorrow we die. You heard that before? People do that. Don't judge them. They're being real about the weight that you try to carry when you're his. So what do we do? You can't argue with Scripture. It's telling us what wise living looks like. I believe Scripture because if you look at this wisdom and live it, it's right. Scripture is accurate. But I also believe Scripture because it tells you. It perfectly describes you when you try to do it. Proverbs 31 is preceded by Proverbs 30. We've got Lemuel and this Proverbs 31 woman, but we've also got Agur. And Agur is a lot more like us. It says in Proverbs 30, verse 1, the words of Agur, son of Jacob, the oracle. The man declares, I'm weary, O God. I'm weary, O God. I'm worn out. Surely I'm too stupid to be a man. I've not the understanding of a man. I've not learned wisdom, nor have I knowledge of the Holy One. That's honest. It's just saying, I failed. I'm too, I'm, I'm too stupid to be a man. Not a superman, not a perfect man. Just what you've created us to be. I can't live in this world. I don't know wisdom. I don't know what the Bible has called me to. I can't live it. I can't be perfect. So what happens now? See, God gives us, in Scripture, a couple of really clear pictures it's difficult to get away from them, but they're pretty harsh pictures. You've got to look at them, though. See, because the way that he responds is in a couple of verses. He sort of says all of what Job says. It says in Proverbs 30, verses 4 and 5, he, he says he's too stupid. He doesn't have any knowledge. He can't stand before the Holy One. And then he, he continues because he says, Who's ascended to heaven and come down? Who's gathered the wind in his fists? Who's wrapped up the waters in a garment? Who's established all the ends of the earth? What's his name? What's his son's name? Surely you know. Every word of God proves true. And he's a shield to those who take refuge in him. Now, it happened really quickly, and I don't know if you followed what was being said there. Again, he's put all of this weight of holiness on us, and we can't carry it. You can pretend and be crushed, or you can throw it and try and run away and be crushed. But what he does is a third option. He realizes that he can't run. He sees God as God. They, you want to get mad at him. You want to rebel against him. You want to just despair and walk away from him, but you can't get away from him. He's the creator. He's above. He set all the ends of the earth. He carries the wind in his fists. He wears the water like a garment. Where will you go? 
The book of Job tells about a man who lost everything and he, he rages against God. Not in a sinful way, and it's crazy to think that. But he's speaking to God about the crazy turn of events that his life took for like 30 chapters. And then you have a couple of chapters at the end where God responds. And God does not respond by telling Job in detail why what happened to him happened to him. He responds by saying, I am God. We need a new pulpit. We need an actual pulpit that I can smack. I am God. I created everything. He speaks to him out of a whirlwind. He kneels from heaven of heavens and looks at Job and just sort of pokes him in the chest. Says, who are you talking to? Who do you think you are to speak that way to me? And it's not that you're just never invited to speak to God that way. Speak to him that way. This guy, Agur, he starts by talking about all of his failures and who is God and what can I do. It's very important that you see this. But you still have to trust him. The God who creates all of this difficulty, the God who seems to be the one creating an impossible standard for you to follow, is also the God who can get you to achieve it. Not by making you perfect or slowly kind of teaching you through Hope Church to become a perfect person. He, being God, gives you a way to be restored. Imagine that weight. He's setting that weight on you. You can't hold it. You can't pick it up. So what's the solution? Jesus. Jesus comes in. And he picks it up for you. That's what his whole life was about. He lived a perfect life, which means he was able to get the weight up. He actually lived in wisdom. He perfectly loved God and loved neighbor. Every moment, every second, every heart's intention of his days. He lifted it up perfectly. And now the restorer, God who is the shield, who, who protects those who call on him. Now you can give your weight to him and just hold on to him. You can't be perfect. Of course not. Allow him to hold that weight for you. Trust. Put your faith, put your trust, your whole soul in him and let him hold you up. And then seeing what he's done for you, your love for him will melt your heart. It talks about in Joel, the punishment that God allows to fall on Israel because of their failure. They couldn't hold the weight. They refused to even try, and it crushed them. But he says in Joel 2, I'm going to go down to verse 25, and so the slides are wrong because of me, but you go down to verse 25, it says, I will restore to you the years that the swarming locusts have eaten, the hopper, the cutter, the destroyer. My great army which I sent among you, you shall eat in plenty and be satisfied. You shall praise the name of the Lord your God who has dealt wondrously with you and my people shall never again be put to shame. He isn't just the righteous judge who tells you that you failed. He's also, if you will go to him, your shield and then your restorer. Verse 27, you shall know that I am in the midst of Israel, that I am the Lord your God and there is none else. My people shall never again be put to shame. 
Brothers and sisters, I want you to study wisdom. I want you to understand what God says about your anger, your money, your life. But more than any of that, you need to keep your eyes on him. He's the one that can, that will restore. He's the one that can give you forgiveness, treat you as though you've held that weight perfectly your whole life, wrap you up in his arms. That's what we mean when we talk about the gospel, about salvation, about being fully known. He knows you couldn't carry the weight, but also fully loved. Oh, man. Center your life on that perfect truth and then continue to plod along. Stay in it. Continue to plod along, pursuing wisdom. We're going to do that together. Let's pray. Lord God and Heavenly Father, I do ask that you would continue to teach us wisdom. Not by making us pretend to be perfect, not by daunting us so that we walk away in despair, but by showing us your love and then restoring us, Father. Teach us to run to you, not run from you. To seek wisdom in you, but also to seek that restoration, that love, that forgiveness that only comes through Christ. We pray these things in your son's holy name. Amen.